Welcome to episode 6 of Up and Away, the Australian Aviation Podcast. This week I'm excited to say we have airline pilot and Australian aviation pioneer Deborah Laurie on the show. Many of you might already know about Deborah, who in 1979 won a landmark anti-discrimination case in Australia's High Court against Ansett Airlines. She has since truly fulfilled her dream. Her career has seen her become a captain with three major airlines across two continents. She continues to be a role model for women aviators in Australia and around the world. I truly hope Deborah's story is an inspiration for everyone who wants to pursue their dreams in aviation and succeed, despite any hardship or discrimination they may face. Once again, thanks for all your support so far. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, as well as subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Now fasten your seatbelt and let's go. Hi Deborah, and welcome to Up and Away. Thanks Chris. Yeah, good afternoon. Um, so I'd like starting with the podcast with this question. Uh, when did your aviation journey start and what inspired you to get into aviation? Well, I started, I guess, when I was about 14 and my father learnt to fly as a midlife crisis hobby and I helped him learn all his uh, theory work and helped him with his checklists and things like that. Went to Moorabbin Airport and while well, he took flying lessons and watched and got interested that way and he said to me that he would give me two lessons when I turned 16, which was the first age uh, earliest I could learn to fly. So that's what he did. Awesome. How did you find those early lessons? Terrible. <laughs> I was a very <laughs> awkward teenager, not really knowing uh, what, how to adjust the seat and do all this, all this other stuff that I had to do. Um, realised that I needed to wear jeans and not a, a dress, which was probably uh, my first lesson in, in flying. But um, it, was, it wasn't until I went solo that I really fell in love with uh, flying itself. I was, up until that point, just trying to prove to my father that I could actually do this. It's funny, a lot of people find solo being quite a daunting first step in aviation, but you, that's, you say that's kind of when you kind of found it the most enjoyable to begin with. It's, look, it's, it is daunting, um, but it's an, an amazing or massive sense of achievement when you do make your first solo. And I think that's what flicks the switch over from, okay, I, I really, this is such a great achievement. I really do love this and I want to keep going with it. I think that's what it's more about. It's, it's a milestone. What was the first uh, license you got? I, I got a, well, what they call a student pilot's license. Uh, and then once you do all the theory and flying for what they call a restricted private pilot, and then it was learning how to navigate and you do another test and become an unrestricted pilot, uh, private pilot, and then you do more study and more hours and more training and become a commercial pilot, and even more after that, and you could, I became what they called in those days a senior commercial pilot, which is now more known as an airline transport um, license. All right. What, what stage along the journey did you realise you wanted to sort of pursue it as a career? Uh, from fairly early on, as part after I got my commercial license, I did an instructor's rating. And so I was teaching 
flying, uh, teaching other people to fly at Moorabbin Airport. Uh, at the same time, I was working as a high school teacher. So I basically worked seven days a week back in those days. Um, oh, wow, busy. Yeah, yeah, very busy. Going to the airport after school at night time on the weekends and all that sort of stuff. And I guess when you're in the more exposed to the industry and you see what other people are doing and uh, lots of the young guys were learning and then applying to airlines and being accepted, and I thought, well, that's the way I want to go as well. So I did. I started that process off. So the instructor was uh, instructor job was your first job in aviation. Uh, yes, I did. Uh, um, I was also what you call a charter charter pilot. So I did the odd uh, charter or joy flights and things like that. But instructing was my first real permanent job in aviation. Yep. How did you find that? I've heard people have a love hate relationship with teaching. <laughs> Oh, no, I loved it. I really, really loved it. Um, uh, I had an interesting collection of students and, uh, no, I, I really did enjoy it. I, I liked, I've always liked teaching. I still do. Yeah, I find that sometimes, um, you know, when you're going through the process of having to teach people, it also reinforces your ideas of what you need to do and sort of what you need to know as well. Yeah, it, do, it definitely keeps you on your toes and up to date with, with everything. Um, but I, I think back in those days, I had a couple of students that were um, were awkward, well, they were having trouble. Let's put it that way. And being able to get them to go solo and get over whatever it was that was hindering their progress was quite satisfying. So I remember I had one guy. He he ended up he was uh, claustrophobic, but he wasn't claustrophobic once we were in the air for some reason. It was only on the ground when you shut the door of the aircraft. So that was kind of a weird problem. So what I ended up doing was we would taxi out to the runway and I'd leave the door cracked open until we were ready to take off and then I'd close it at the last minute. And just doing that helped him to get over the problem that he had and he eventually was able to um, progress past that point oh wow so that was good yeah that's cool yeah there's a lot of problem solving i find with that stuff and it's you know it's always changing so i guess it's like flying in general where you know you're presented with people having different issues and things that they need help with and you've got to find a solution for that yeah well that's right i mean not everybody fits into the same uh you know round peg in a square hole or whatever they say but yeah um it's a matter of identifying what someone's issues are and then adapting the training to help them as best you can and some people of course it doesn't work at all but uh, the majority you can usually get around those things and help them learn what kind of charter work were you doing at the time so where were you flying uh one one day i remember i went down to there was very bad bushfires at bansdale in victoria and um, back in those days, the press would come to the airport to uh, hire an aircraft and fly down and take pictures of bushfire and all that sort of thing and then bring the rolls of film back to Moorabbin and race them into wherever they developed them or what have you. Um, but I took some reporters down there and everyone else had gone. Uh, these reporters were late on the scene. And they weren't too happy about 
me flying them down there. They thought I was the secretary and that the pilot would be turning up soon. And when I sort of said, okay, we're going, they were a little bit astonished. Um, anyway, they sat there quietly when we went down. And as it turned out, uh, one of the other aircraft that had flown down there actually had an accident uh, when, during landing. Not not a serious, but they they disabled the aircraft. And when the people that they took down uh, came back, of course they couldn't fly back to Moorabbin, and they came over and asked uh, my uh, passengers if they would take the film back for them, and of course they said no. <laughs> and uh, so they had a scoop. <laughs> they were very happy on the way back. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Um, they're like, oh, next time can you fly and also disable all the other planes and you know get, yeah. get <laughs> to make sure we get the scoop next time. It was only because I was a bit more conservative in those days, so I, I wasn't into uh, doing everything as quickly as possible and all that sort of stuff. I, I had a more conservative approach, which paid out in the end. That's true. Often does in aviation, I've heard. So yeah, mm. no air racing for you yet. Oh, I did. Yeah, I used to air race a lot. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. But that's a different thing. That's that's different again. Then you've really, oh, no, no, I was very, I was air racing uh, since I was about 17. Wow. How did you get into that? Because um, the Women Pilots Association had a, what they called a Frida Thompson aerial derby. And it was like a olden version of the Red Bull thing going around the. Oh, yeah. But instead of going around pylons, we went around Port Phillip Bay and you had people on the ground observing that you didn't cut the corner, cut corners. So we had to fly to certain points all around the bay as fast as we could. Um, and it was all handicapped and things like that. And then they uh, measured the results or, or assessed the results against the handicap speeds and things at the end and you, you had a winner it was just a, a flat out race wow that's awesome fantastic yeah and then another one i went in a couple of times was what used to be known as the southern cross air race and that was a two-day uh navigate more like a car rally thing like a navigation trial so at the answer questions along the way like what's the color of Joe Bloggs's roof at such and such a point and, you know, all that sort of thing. Oh, uh, yeah. I've, I've heard they do that in – there's one in Europe or something that's like like that at the moment. Yeah, yeah. They went out of um, – when the price of fuel went up and all that sort of thing, the, there was le fewer of these things. But mm. back in the uh, 80s, they were – it was great fun. Wow. What kind of aircraft were you flying? Uh, usually I went in uh, Cherokee Warriors or um, Cessna 182 or something like that. But in the in the um, the flat out air races, I've eventually started flying Comanche in that one. Oh, cool! Yeah. So, and the thing was, being in a flying school, you knew which aeroplanes were slightly better than the others. So, like. Always an aeroplane, one aeroplane will fly a little bit faster or a little bit, it's rigged a little bit better than another one. So <laughs> that was what it, that was boiled down to, you know, finding the best one that you had and washing it and making sure it was as um, shiny as possible. Uh, <laughs> yeah, at least drag as possible. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So you're like, oh, that's my one. 
I, I, I call dibs on that one. Oh, yeah, yeah. I would, I would book it well in advance. It's, yeah, exactly. That's awesome. So what um, what planes were you flying in the charter work? Um, that varied. Uh, I did uh, Barons and um, Twin Comanches, um, basically that sort of stuff. I did far more instructing than charter. Um, I need the odd charter. And was that from the um, flight school as well, that you did the uh, the same company? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think that's a good way once you sort of get in, I think for a lot of people, once you get in sort of sort of teaching job, a lot of uh, flight schools do do the charter work as well, and it's a good way to get sort of extra hours and stuff on top of your teaching. Yeah, that's that's right. Um it, it it is. I mean, it's and it, it's also a nice mixture to to your your work instead of having to because instructing is quite um, tiring. Mm. Charter is less tiring. So uh, after all that, um, seeing other people sort of applying for the airlines is that what inspired you to try and apply for a position at ANSET? Well, that if these guys were getting jobs in airlines and that was a that was the pinnacle of of the aviation career that was the highest step to go mm. and that and and also where you earned a lot more money and i couldn't see why there was any reason why i shouldn't do the same thing because now i i had decided that aviation was going to be my career i may as well go for the best job possible and so I applied. I applied to TAA and ANSET. Um, the thing was, ANSET were the. They kept responding back to me to, nice to have your application and please update us when you have more hours or more qualifications and we'll just keep you on the books. But they were just doing that to be polite, because there was an age limit of twenty seven. And they were just waiting for me to get to 27 and then they would uh, remove the application because they did not want to deal with it. At what point did you realise the responses you are getting were due to discrimination? Well, it wasn't uh, – I didn't realise from the responses as such. It, I, I went – I was eventually interviewed, more or less, I think, just to sort of pro, get the process over and done with. And then I went for a second interview and um, as a result of that, I was sent on for further testing. So I was actually selected. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was Reg answered himself who reversed the decision. I imagine that would have been pretty tough knowing that that's sort of what you had to fight up and fight against at the time. Um, what kind of made you keep going and what kind of gave, it, gave you the inspiration and the conviction to see it through and sort of fight that decision? Um, when, when I was rejected, um, I think it was a, a gut feeling that when they make this selection of pilots for training, um, they use various criteria and that's such as your education qualifications, number of hours you've got, um, the age you are, all that sort of stuff. But I, I compared very favourably with the other people that were going for this at the same time. And so the suspicion was there that uh, there were other reasons, let's say, why I was eventually rejected. And at the time, the Victorian Equal Opportunity Act had just been, well, enacted, and I went along to see the Commissioner of Equal Opportunity 
and presented this case that perhaps there had been some discrimination in my case. And then she contacted ANSET and decided there had been, or likely to have been. She contacted ANSET and in her conversation with him uh, more or less concluded that perhaps I did, I did have a case and that um, this case could be presented in front of the Equal Opportunity Board and um, there were hist- was history after that mm. because normally, you know, you'll have mediation or something like that, but ANSET, of course, weren't interested in that. They were just going to fight this tooth and nail right to the end. The thing was that I thought it would be a fairly quick uh, solution, that it would just be in court for a day and out again and all solved. But it wasn't. It went on for over a year and, and eventually ended up in the High Court. So once I'd started this, I had nothing to lose. I actually had to keep going because to pull out would mean I would would have lost everything. Mm. So I had to fight it right up until the end. Yeah, it's sort of like accepting defeat. And did you realise at the point that um, if you were to keep going, that would set a precedence for you know future generations of pilots? No, I, I, I didn't uh, think of along those lines at the time. All, all I was focused on was uh, beating the system or beating the uh, ANSET in the court to prove like I knew they had discriminated. There was no doubt. In fact, they said this in the High Court. They admitted they discriminated, but they were going to try and weasel out of it under another legal precedent. So um, it, it was very confronting. Uh, it was In one way you say, okay, yeah, I was right, but in another way I'm going, well, if I'm right, then I deserve, I deserve to be given a chance to go and do the training. But... They were fighting this uh, with an enormous amount of legal power in the High Court and they still didn't win. So that was kind of very satisfying. Yeah, I imagine so. Mm. Um, Was it sort of a time when you realised that was discrimination? Did that sort of bring up other times in your life when that potentially could have been the case in pursuing this as a career? and? it may have opened your eyes to that you might have experienced this in the past i have i have one early childhood recollection of of discrimination when my father used to go to the races horse races at flemington and occasionally he took me along and in those days i was only 10 at the time but in those days they had um, a members area from a, a men only area and believe it or not there was a line painted on the ground where only men could step on the other side of this line and it, even there was a guy there guarding this line so strictly no women on the other side of this line Far out. yeah i know it's just amazing when you think about it and my father used to have to go into that section occasionally, I don't know what for, maybe to put on a special bet or whatever it was. But whilst I was waiting for him, I used to stand there as close to that line as possible and then just put my toe over it every now and again, you know, (laughs) just to um, piss off that guy that was guarding it. So, yeah, that's, that's that's what I 
remember so clearly and I was thinking, well, how, how dare they? I mean, this can't be right. This is not fair. I think that tells you something about, you know, where you're going from there in terms of the uh, ANSET case in the High Court. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, like, yeah, it was quite funny when I think back to it. So, <laughs> I'm not dealing with this. Yeah. There's no way. No, no. So, but, I, I, you know, I was deliberately provoking him, but, of course, um, yeah, anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's no line now, I'm sure. yeah. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's 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 good to challenge those things and be aware of them. And there's so many cases, you know, around the world and even in Australia where over the years there has been that line figuratively or literally yeah. that um, has prevented so many people from, you know, yeah. achieving their dreams and, you know, what they want to do with their lives. So Yeah, that's right. Yeah, in, in, in many areas, that's correct, yeah. Um, so... Was there a time may, maybe after the case where you realised that this could, you know, lead to so many more people, you know, breaking down that barrier and, you know, achieving what they want to achieve? Um, I, I didn't really understand the implication of that case until many years afterwards. And um, it wasn't until I started doing some talks and and. Uh, going to give presentations at schools and, you know, all, all those sorts of things that I realised just how big that case was. At the time, I absolutely didn't get it. It was only later on down the track. Yeah, wow. And after I started, there wasn't a flood of, I mean, there's never been a flood of women pilots really uh, for various reasons. I think it's changing now, but um it's all about exposure so and you have to start in at school level for that so if young girls aren't exposed to what the opportunities are out in the world they don't necessarily think about it so you've got to you've got to have that be able to see what's available to be able to choose it and know that it's available by someone else showing you or, or coming along and saying, this is what I do, and if you're interested, um, you can do it as well. That leads to one of my next questions, which was to, you know, what can we do to encourage and ensure equality and diversity in aviation in Australia and, you know, inspire young women to pursue this as a career? Yeah, well, I think in any any career, it's always you, you, you'll get diversity if you choose the best. Mm. no matter what so it's not about quotas or anything like that so if you are always looking for the best people to do whatever and you don't let anything else stand in the way you you will get diversity automatically but you have it's about getting those groups of people to understand that that opportunity is available to them because they I think like girls might think, oh, I'm a just because I'm a girl, that means I can't do this or I can't do that. Or a boy might say, because I'm a guy, you know, that's not the sort of job that guys do or whatever. But if you can demonstrate to them that in actual fact it, it is something they can do if they want to, and that's got to start really early on, maybe even from children's books, you know, mm. where you represent like stereotypes in um, certainly when I was growing up, it, you never would have seen a, a a girl in a uniform or something like that. That would that wouldn't have been the case 
the little girls were always nursing dolls or babies or something like that. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's about t stereotyping imagery that usually restricts this opportunities for kids. I find. Mm, I even think, you know, when you think back to people like Amelia Earhart, like early women aviation pioneers, um, I guess she still was never an airline pilot um, and was never portrayed in a uniform in that position of, you know, um, you know, looking after a plane full of people and transporting them across the world or something. That was yes, still not really what who she was. So Yeah. It's funny you should talk about... Um, the uniform thing because many years ago I was at a one of our international women pilots airline pilots conferences we have them every year and it was a many many years ago in Rome and Alitalia were hosting the the cocktail party and all that sort of stuff and one of my girlfriends flew with FedEx FedEx that um, freighter airline and her daughter was only five years old, but she had seen all her mother's friends and colleagues, or friends rather, that were also airline pilots. So this little girl was used to seeing her mother get in her uniform and go to work and all this sort of stuff. And she took her along to this conference and uh, at this um, luncheon the following day and the host's Alitalia, the, the guys all came out in their uniforms and were doing all that sort of thing, looking very smart. And this little girl turned around to her mother and said, well, mummy, can, can boys be airline pilots too? That's amazing. Yeah, because she had not really been exposed to that. So her perception was that this was a girl's job. It goes to show all of that stuff is just learnt behaviour. Correct, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was very, very, very interesting. Eye-opening. Mm. I guess that also um, leads to me asking, we sort of touched on it a little bit, but how have you seen it change over the years in terms of, you know, gender equality? Is it different these days to what it used to be? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, back when I started, they said, oh, well, you, you know, it's going to be a problem for you because there's no female toilets here and all that sort of thing. Mm. Well, you know, all that stuff's changed. Um, having to put up with a male uniform and not have my own type of style of uniform, all that's changed. Um, um, introduction of maternity leave, things like that. Um, all just support structures for women in these roles, whereas back when I, was, when I started there was no such thing. So these days um, women have got a uh, much better support structure that they can talk to one another. They, uh, there's, what is it, safety in numbers, I guess. That's, that's, a, that's another thing. Um, but it, and it's, uh, the, the companies are much more enthusiastic about giving them a go or, you know, when they're, when they're making their selections. They're keen to get them on board. So they're encouraged to do this, whereas I was kind of discouraged. 
Yeah, and I think we'll only we'll see that percentage increase as well if we do the things like you were saying earlier, like encouraging people from a young age and you know breaking down those stereotypes and you know displaying women in these positions. Yeah, I had a little girl come. I was doing a flight to Coffs Harbour a couple of years ago, and one of the passengers had requested if her daughter could come up to the flight deck. And this is another thing: since we've locked flight deck doors, children exposed to the environment. But on the ground, of course, she can let them up. And um, I said, sure, she can come up, fine. Because I love having little kids on the flight deck because I love the questions they ask. She appeared and she had a little pilot's uniform on. Yeah, it's it's true. It was handmade. She had the little shirt on, the wings, the whole thing, the hat, everything. And I just looked at her and I was just like gobsmacked. And her mother said, it's all she wants to be. So... I thought, wow, that's so amazing. I don't know how that happened. But um, so I, I spent quite a bit of time with her um, showing her things and all that sort of stuff. So I, I I wonder how she's going, actually, and I really do hope she, she does do, does get there eventually. I'm sure she will. I'm sure she will, and I'm sure she might even hear this uh, conversation <laughs> in the future. And, and... <laughs> It would be really nice if she did. I can't even I, – I did know her, her first name, but it was a very unusual name and I can't recall what it was. But, yeah, she was a sweet little girl. She's only about seven, six or seven, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure she'll pursue it. One of the first things that really made me want to get into aviation was uh, being led into the on the flight deck on a flight between Melbourne and Brisbane when I went to see my grandparents often who lived in Brisbane and I was in Melbourne. And it's some of my earliest memories, and I think it really set the course for me to always want to do that my entire life. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. And and we used to have kids up all the time, but, of course, you can't. Yeah, it's a bit sad these days. Yeah, we were sort of talking about on the, our first on my first episode, and, um, yeah, I think it definitely needs to be replaced by something just to get more people inspired and get that sort of visibility happening. Yeah, yes, exactly. Instead of the secretive... Uh, place that it is at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how long were you at ANSET all up? I was with ANSET for just just under 10 years from 79 to 89 and 89 was the pilots dispute in Australia and that's where a lot of guys left or were not welcomed back into the industry as the airlines rebuilt and um so a lot of really um, talented group, if you like, had to go overseas and find work elsewhere. And I joined that uh, as well. I went. I eventually found a position over in KLM in Europe. Awesome. KLM's a, uh, I think it's the oldest airline in the world. That is correct. It is. Even though Qantas try to say they're the oldest, they're not. KLM are older than you. <laughs> It's pretty cool. So pretty, pretty big company to um, go and uh, pursue a career. What, what sort of made you go there in particular? Um, it wasn't about going there in particular. It was about opportunity. There were very few opportunities even in 1989 for women. There weren't any in the Middle East, none in Asia. America, you're out because of no green card. So Europe was really the only place and KLM were – expanding at that time with their um, 
European um, KLM City Hopper. So uh, that's the opportunity came up there and quite a number of Australians went there, actually. And also they all their manuals are in English, all their procedures are in English. So that made it a lot easier as well. What was their sort of track record when it came to women in aviation and KLM? Uh, there was probably about 30 of them when I went over, already established there. Um, to me, it was really strange because, like, it didn't – what I'd been through seemed to not exist. There was no kind of – it was just like, oh, yeah, you're you're female, so what? You're a pilot, right? Well, that's good. Um do you know what I mean? It yeah. was all set up and squared away and there was no kind of issue. So being an Australian was more of an issue than being female. <laughs> You're like, oh, no, round two. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 not at all. No, no, they were, they were great. Awesome. Fantastic. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. I think, yeah, it sometimes comes down to a cultural thing um, of how we perceive, you know, who can do particular jobs and, you know, what people, certain people's roles are within society is definitely comes down to, you know, that education thing, exposure and culture. Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. What, what was your roles at KLM? What, what, what kind of stuff were you doing and what, what aircraft were you flying? Well, when I, when I first got there, I was, um, I was actually just in the transition of becoming a captain on the 737 when the pilots dispute happened. But when I went over to KLM, I went in as a first officer on the Fokker 50 and after nine months, then I upgraded to captain on that aircraft and flew that aeroplane for seven years and then went on to the Fokker 70, Fokker 100. And in a few years after that, I then flew the Airbus A330. So my my main time with them was, was flying into, around Europe and also... I became interested in flight safety, um, so I got quite involved with that aspect and um, did a lot of work in safety investigations and, and flight safety in general. Uh, how was flying in Europe different than flying in Australia? Were there different rules and regulations? Not so much different rules and regulations. A, a few little differences, but the main difference was the volume of traffic, the extremes of weather that uh like snow and stuff which we don't get here all that often and also coping with different cultures and accents on the radio going from say france germany to italy um all that sort of thing so uh they were the they were the main main issues uh, but made it much more interesting much more interesting I imagine so. It's, it'd be different every time, depending on what country you're flying to. Yeah, it was. It was good. It was really, really good. I, I actually miss that a lot. Did, did you have a favourite leg that you liked flying? Um, yes, um, down to Nice in France, because just because of the views, and also to places in Norway, also because of the spectacular views. And just really amazing. It's crazy. It's definitely something you don't get in Australia where, you know, I, I suspect it'd almost be a similar length going to Norway as would be, you know, the south of France. Um, but you're getting such vast different, you know, environments and, you know, 
landscapes that you're flying over. Correct. You know, crossing the Alps, going down into Italy, for instance, um, that that was also amazing. So, yeah, all the flights are like from Amsterdam, they were like an hour, an hour and a half, two hours maybe. And you, and you could be going to several, across several different countries in that time. Yeah, nice little bite-sized flights. Nice. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> and because we, uh, we stayed overnight many times in these different countries as well. So that was interesting. So... Um, for instance, you might have one night in Venice and then you might have one night in Berlin and then one night over in England somewhere. In, you know, it was really good. It's cool. Did you have to brush up on some foreign languages? Uh, no. I had learned French in school and one of the things with flying into Paris was a lot, a lot of times the controllers do speak French. All right. Um, yeah, especially to other to Air France, for instance. But mm. so I could follow a lot of that. Um, but English is the standard language for air traffic control in Europe. So um, what I did learn was how to say hello and goodbye in a lot of languages. But the only language I really had to try to learn was Dutch. But I wasn't very good at that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. So you've got a passion for flight safety. What made you sort of get into that path? That it's a um, fairly particular thing. And you said you sort of started getting into it while you're in Europe flying for KLM. Yeah, well, um, I, I guess I got interested even a little bit before that. Um, again, at one of these women airline pilot conferences, a girlfriend of mine gave me a book for my birthday and it was called... Um, the final call, and it it was about why airline accident, accidents continue to happen, and it was a fantastic analysis of airline accidents over decades. And I just got fascinated reading this thing, and that sparked my interest in learning more about investigation of of aircraft incidents and accidents. So I pursued uh, I went to Cranfield University in England to do a course there and just became interested. The more I did, the more interested I became. Um, so, yeah, that's where it started. What did you pursue in that field? Did you, um, besides the course, uh, is there something that you sort of have taken into your roles since and have utilised? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, when, when, when I came back to KLM, um, after doing, well, I did the course while I was at KLM, but uh, along with a couple of other colleagues, we had a discussion about the fact that what we needed in airlines was something that we could, uh, a tool that we could use or a method we could use to analyse any events within the airline um, that weren't necessarily accidents. But to teach people how to do this, you needed a different this course which had an emphasis in different areas. So we actually developed a course to train um, airline personnel and we started, it was very, it's um, still uh, available, but it was very popular back then and we delivered it to many, many companies uh, in Europe, uh, to airline operators in Europe um, to help them to, if I can explain it this way, that if you have an aircraft accident, 
the state authorities or the the government of the, the country that where the accident occurs that country's in charge of doing the investigation but if you have a an, a serious incident it's not necessarily investigated by that state authority sometimes it's left up up to the airline to do that but the skills and disciplines you need to perform that task are just as important as if you were doing investigating an accident because an incident is just something that didn't turn into an accident but all the precursors are there and all the reasons for it getting to the stage it gets to are there so understanding all those elements and learning how to analyze all those elements is really really important that it's done properly so that's why we were interested in in that type of work and that's what i've been doing ever since yeah i think it's interesting because often we rely on something terrible going wrong and some serious mm. accident happening before some changes enacted but if we use the yeah. same kind of analysis and like scrutiny for you know near misses say you know not um and things that almost have become you know bad accidents um we could learn a lot more a lot quicker i think yeah, there, there's a classic example of that. It was American Airlines accident down in, uh, in at uh, Cali, and this was a American Airlines 757 that w got lost navigating the wrong way to the wrong beacon, and they realised at the last minute that they had they were in the wrong place, and they uh, put on their the power to to get out of there and go around. And unfortunately, the aircraft didn't have an automatically retracting speed brake and the speed brake was out. And because of that, they didn't get the climb performance that, that was required to outclimb this particular mountain. And they crashed into the mountain. The thing is that if they had to put the speed brake in, they wouldn't have crashed and it would have just been a very serious incident. Mm. So the only difference was the fact that speed brake was out. All the other elements were the same. So leading up to why they got lost, how that happened, where the miscommunication was, where the poor decision-making was or what have you, that was all, all those elements were there. So if, and it probably would have been missed had it only been a serious incident unless you could investigate it properly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Even if they picked up on the fact that uh, this, you know, and, and retracted the speed brake last minute, um, the fact that that might have been missed is what is equally as important. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, in fact, this aeroplane, uh, most aeroplanes, the speed brake retracts when you put power on, but this particular one didn't. And again, yeah, it took that to work that out and work out that could lead to a terrible accident. And yeah, well, not so much the speed brake itself. I mean, that was that was the final straw that broke mm. the camel's back. But it was all the stuff that led up to that was why they got into the mess in the first place. After KLM, you moved back to Australia? Correct, yeah. And what was your most recent job back in Australia? Um, up until the lovely COVID period, I've been doing um, a check and training captain on the A320 with Tiger Tiger Air. Awesome. Based out of Sydney. So that's where your initial flight uh, instructing has come back? Well, I, I my initial flight instructing was at Moorabbin, but yes, instructing back 
on just a different type of aircraft, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, totally. Yeah, but that, yeah, so I've done the full circle. Um, so what kind of uh, responsibilities and roles do you have as a training captain? Well, as a training captain, uh, the pilots uh, learn learn the aircraft systems and learn how to handle or operate the aircraft in the simulator, but then they have to go out and do line training with a training captain, and this is about applying all the procedures and stuff that they've learnt in the simulator in the real environment and dealing with air traffic control, dealing with the weather, dealing with all these other things. So what was pretty uh, special and probably what a lot of people don't even realise, but I could have a new trainee um, with a whole load of passengers down the back and this would be the very first time that they would be landing this particular aircraft. Yeah, wow. So I'll be teaching them the technique, the correct, like it's always a little different to the simulator. So mainly I would be teaching them techniques, how to land the aeroplane, how to um, manage the energy of the aircraft, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, that, that, that was what my role was as a training captain. As a check captain, I was making sure that pilots were maintaining the correct standards and knowledge and uh, level of performance. So every year they had to um, they have to be checked in the aircraft itself. So I would sit in the jump seat and, and just observe their operation and make sure that they were doing everything in the correct manner. That's when all the uh, sweats start happening. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Putting the pressure on. Well. You know that was the that was the tricky part to it was people do get nervous when they're being observed so it was about how to not hope that they wouldn't get so nervous that their performance would would deteriorate so it was a fine balance between trying to make them feel at ease but also making sure that they're performing correctly. Mm. Do you account for that in uh, the assessment? Like, do you realise, oh, they, they look pretty stressed out, so um, I know that they could do that procedure or something, you know, probably slightly more accurately or something, but, you know, I'm going to give them a bit of slack? Normally people who are nervous will make silly mistakes, yeah. like stupid. But if they're the underlying um, uh, knowledge or the underlying way in which they just go about things, their attitude, all that sort of stuff, that will always be there. That always comes through. Um, so you, you can tell straight away if someone is, is you know, got it or not, basically. The thing, the un, the, the thing though, is if if they do if they do something that's incorrect and not maybe it could be because they're nervous or maybe some other reason, but if they go outside a certain parameter for, for, whatever, for whatever it might be, they might, you know, blow an altitude or do something like that, you don't have a choice. I mean, that is you can't let them pass. And it's not a it's not like a big deal. You you just they just do a little bit of retraining and then yeah, they just get checked again. But it's about really about that you cannot really compromise on standards. But you do need someone to put them in the best possible frame of mind so that they will perform to their best of their ability. And a lot of these people I will have flown with anyway when I'm operating normally as a captain. So I know how they fly. That's, that's not an issue. So 
it's it's about whether or not that they're doing the right thing and they've done the work that they needed to do and and they've kept kept themselves um, up to date. So what um, advice would you give to people who want to pursue aviation as a career? What do you reckon they should start to get into and, you know, how, how, how to begin? Um, the advice I would give people these days is different to the advice I would have given them 12 months ago. That's true. Yeah, but I think to get into aviation now, it's really important to learn at an at a institution or flying school or somewhere where there is a career path. So somewhere where a company might or a flying school might be associated with maybe a charter company in the outback or have um, associated associated with the Royal Flying Doctor Service or whatever. But it's not just any flying school sitting somewhere that just teaches people to fly because those people are happy to turn up and pay the money. What I would suggest to people is that they really research what the connections this flying school has to the greater world of aviation out in Australia um, because you need to you need those that progress to get anywhere. And at the moment, the industry is just going through a shocker period and it's going to be several years before it recovers. So, if you're getting into it now, you need to have need to have the ability to hang in there until it does recover, and then it'll probably boom again. Yeah, I think it'll just take that determination and that drive forward through it all to see the outcome on the other side. Yes, yeah, because it's very expensive uh, to to learn, um, but. It, you can't sort of not use your qualifications. So that's that's the important thing, that there is somewhere to go after you've learned. I'd like to um, kind of finish with a couple of fun questions. Uh, one being, what's been your most memorable flight so far? Um, in terms of, uh, like, there's memorable for a lot of reasons. Um, I can tell you ones that are memorable because they were... Uh, nail biting but there's ones that have been very memorable from the visual sort of aspect um let's do both <laughs> uh, yeah. um flying over the top of new york at just before new year's eve and you could see the fireworks from up there that was amazing wow yeah that was that was pretty amazing um any time flying into sydney's amazing um, especially when you come down from the north and fly down past, turn over the uh, Sydney Harbour and all that sort of stuff. Every time I fly from Melbourne, every time I fly into Sydney, I'm just always amazed. I'm like, why doesn't our city look like this? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. It, it's the most beautiful city in the world, I think. Mm. Um, I guess the, my, my nail-biting experience was one time over the, North Sea flying to uh, Norway and in a Fokker 50 and we had the engine anti-ice on and the it wasn't working. So basically all the propellers iced up and the engine started coughing and spluttering and e. that was very unpleasant. <laughs> so you're like, oh, this, this could be one of those uh, not accidents but something that should be looked into. Yeah, well, well, it was definitely looked into, that's for sure. Mm. But when you 
when you don't, when you have a system that's not working and you don't really understand why it's not working, it's very difficult um, uh, situation. But I, I have like my top ten. That's my number one. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's number two? You've intrigued me. Oh, number two was a a, a very nasty rotor that came off a mountain in Wellington just on the approach into the, uh, into the north in New Zealand, um, just coming in in the A320. And all of a sudden something, which, you know, you can't explain it, but just rolled an uncommanded roll of the aeroplane, which was terrifying, and it was just all this rotor. And it was a full aileron in the opposite direction didn't make any impression on the roll at all oh man that's pretty scary survived that one (laughs) (laughs) um i feel like this could be an entire podcast itself your top 10 (laughs) yeah my top 10 yeah yeah oh yeah that's right i've had engine failure and stuff like that but that wasn't as dramatic as something like that roll but um yeah yeah the top 10 yeah (laughs) There's um, <laughs> I feel like things like engine failure because you know you train for that, um, mm. you know it can be rather innocuous, but things that kind of get thrown at you without warning, um, and you don't know maybe what the cause is. That's kind of scary. Yeah, that's that's um, yeah, far, far more in, far more stressful. I think um, the other the other thing is like extremes extreme extreme of weather, mm. which. Uh, is unforecast or, or occurs suddenly or what have you. Um, that can always – one night we were trying to land in Turin and we made through oh, two attempts. I think the third attempt we gave it away. But we literally could not get in due to the severe, severity of the turbulence. It was like nothing I have ever seen in my entire career. And it was very bad um, snow as well. And we ended up diverting to Genoa. And I'd never been to Genoa before. So this is now the middle of the night. Um, Whipping out the approach plates. Yeah, yeah, trying to trying to work, yeah, yeah, trying to quickly get around, get your head around how do you get into this new airport and things like that. And just the most horrific weather. So... That type of thing as well, that can be very um, demanding. Mm. Yeah, that's in the top That's in the top ten? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm very intrigued. I, f- I feel like I, I want to know more, but um, I think I'll move, move on to the uh, final fun question, which there might also be a top ten. Um, what would your dream flight you could take just for fun be? thought about this and one of the most spectacular flights that I ever did was in a light aircraft from Bankstown to the Hunter Valley along that coast of Sydney along that coast of New South Wales rather and we went along up there at 500 feet so I'm thinking 500 feet around Australia coast that'd be pretty amazing that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Mm. All the things you'd see. I mean, way back when I was getting all my hours up, I used to fly friends around and the, who used to pay for the petrol, the fuel, 
and we would go on these little safaris up the centre and down the east coast, down the west coast, across the Nullarbor, all those sort of things. Um, we, um, and just to fly a light aircraft at that height and all the things you see and land along the way, of course, but around the whole of Australia, I think that would be good fun. Yeah, I think it's a whole different perspective and it's faster than driving. So, um, you know, there's large expanses of land that are sort of featureless and don't have a lot going on, but, you know, you're seeing a lot more of it quicker and, you know, you're close so you can see, you sort of feel like you're in on the action, you're not up, you know, 10,000 feet plus. Well, it's, it's funny because sometimes, yeah, exactly, when you're flying, there's sometimes you'll see something that strikes you it might be a sunset or a sunrise or particular cloud formation or something like that it will just strike you and you say how how good is this so flying along that particular area of the coastline I thought wow this is just the most beautiful part of the country and that yeah so just things that strike you like that do you do any light plane flying when you are outside of the a320 I uh, didn't do, no, not a lot. did a, a couple of things. This this particular flight I did that day happened to be with my son because he was um, trying to get his hours up. But, um, no, I haven't done a lot myself. I really didn't have time. I was flat out flying these jets around everywhere, so I didn't have much time for anything else. It's the work-life balance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I say I play golf when I'm not flying. So you got to fly your plane to the golf. Yeah, I've done that. That's cool. Fly, uh, flown from Wollongong to Yarrawonga, yeah, to, to um, play golf. Well, that was in one of the golf tournaments a couple of years ago. We decided we'd fly instead of drive. Awesome. Mm. That's a way to do it. A, that's a nice flight too. It is nice, yes. It's very, very nice, yes. Well, uh, thanks for joining us on Up and Away and sharing your amazing story with us. Um pretty sure it will be a huge inspiration for aspiring pilots and particularly women who want to pursue their dreams in aviation. Well, thanks, Chris. It'll be nice to talk to you. It's been amazing. So, and thanks again. No problem. Thanks for listening to episode six. Once again, I hope this episode inspires you to pursue your dreams and succeed. As you probably know by now, there's a new episode out every Friday. So stay tuned and see you next time.